Welcome to Socialette, your go-to source for bite-sized lessons in launching and online marketing. I'm your host, Steph Taylor, and I'm a corporate dropout turned launch strategist, helping you launch your digital products simply and successfully so you can reach more people, grow your audience, and become the go-to brand in your space. Want to swipe my signature launch framework? Download my free ebook, The Complete Roadmap for a Killer Launch at stephtaylor.co forward slash roadmap. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of my latest episodes released every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Hey, welcome back to Socialette. This is episode 502. Today I'm bringing in Kirsty Fanton to share all of her magic insights that go into writing copy that converts like crazy in a launch. And I'm not just saying that. Kirsty has written so much copy for my own business. She wrote uh, the copy for the podcast launch plan sales page and the eat cart open emails, which in my business have generated a heck of a lot of money. And she also wrote the emails for the first couple of launches of Launch Magic before she went on mat leave. And yeah, we don't talk about that now. I'm really sad. <laughs> uh, but I'm super excited because Kirsty is a genius when it comes to gathering those insights from your potential customers that you can use to write copy that converts even better than if you are trying to imagine what's going on in your customer's head. We're also talking a bit about how to collect social proof and how to use that in your launch to make it convert better. So without any further ado, let's jump into the chat with Kirsty. Kirsty, welcome to Socialette. I'm very, very excited to have you here because you've been such an integral part of my business growth and all of my launches. And it's funny because even now, like several launches since you first wrote my launch copy, I still come back to it all of the time. And I'm like, thank goodness for Kirsty. What would I have done without Kirsty? So I'm really excited to have you here and share some of your magic with my listeners. Oh, thanks so much, Steph. And I'm so excited to be here. You're just one of my favorite all-time clients because you are just all about the data and you're all about experimentation. And yeah, I just have loved working with you and I'm excited to get to be on your amazing podcast. So, thanks for having me. Thank you. So, let's start off with a little bit around, I guess, your business journey. Um, Obviously, you started out kind of doing the the whole service-based copywriter thing. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know like how that evolution, how the evolution of your business has played out from where you were service business through to preparing your business to go on mat leave through to where you are now and like what your vision is for the future. Oh, such a good question to kick things off. Okay. Well, (laughs) stop me me if I go down too many rabbit holes because I feel like- I love rabbit holes. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Um, So, you're right. I started off um, purely as a one-to-one service-based business. I actually started off writing only email copy, expanded from there into launch copy because I realized so many of my prospects were wanting a full launch solution, not just a launch sequence. So, figured, hey, I could do a lot more exciting projects and more lucrative projects if I added sales pages, social media ads, landing pages, et cetera, to my bow. Um, So, rolled around offering launch copy for a while. And then in, do you remember what year it was now? feels like a lifetime ago. Maybe it was 2018. I launched my first group program, which is called Brain Camp. And it's still something I run every year and something I absolutely love doing. Um, And that really came from a place of missing 
teaching. So for a bit of context, before I moved into copywriting, I was working as a psychotherapist and I also lectured a few psychology subjects here at university in Sydney. And the teaching always lit me up. Like I just, I loved it. Like I love getting to work with people and and see that sort of transformation in knowledge and confidence and then all those delicious outcomes you can get from there. So um, Brain Camp came about as a result of that and also as as an awareness of realizing that all the knowledge I had from my previous career in psychotherapy was so relevant to copywriting and also not super well known. I think people will often refer to, you know, really basic cognitive psychology like tactics when they're talking about copywriting, but I feel like the bigger picture things like big picture decision-making, relationship formation, which as you know, is, is so integral to, you know, successfully connecting with your audience and, and selling things easily. Um, all those sorts of things I don't think are, are really well taught in the space. Um, so, that's where Brain Camp came from and that was my first ever group program and I loved it. Um, and I think that was my was definitely my first foray into something other than direct one-to-one client services, um, and that spurned a slightly different business model. Uh, I have offered two other group programs since then, um, one of which wasn't the best fit, so I only came about once, one of which is great, um, and I've offered, I think, three, three, three times. Um, and then I also, actually, I think it was after working with you, Steph, because I got insight into the scalability of digital products um, and how truly successful they could be if you have a solid product, which you obviously do, you have many solid products <laughs> and good <laughs> positioning and the ability to grow an audience and connect with them through your copy. Um, so, I have since added two digital products to my business model um, and I got a one-year-old. So, um, <laughs> the I think that was also motivation to step away or give myself the opportunity to rely less on income from uh, one-to-one client work or projects where I'm required to show up at certain times of the day um, because I knew that my time wouldn't be anywhere near as reliable um, as it was once I had a very small human in the picture. Yeah. That's a very long answer. Sorry, but I hope no. That, that was that was great. So I'm I'm curious. Like other than other than focusing more on like the group program aspect rather than the one on one client stuff, what else did you put into place in your business before you went on mat leave? Such a good question. So I did not get as far down the path as I'd planned because I had a really rough pregnancy. I was just sick the whole the whole nine months. Um, <laughs> but I did put in place um, an evergreen funnel for one of my digital products, the Social Proof Sidekick. And that was deliberate because I wanted to see if I could build up even just a modest income from that so I didn't feel the pressure to come back to my business because my expenses were outweighing my income. So I'm happy to say that I didn't work at all for, I think it was 11 months in the end. Um, of mat leave um, and I was covering costs in my business with this evergreen funnel that is actually performing quite well but has like abysmal traffic. So, <laughs> um, it's a fun challenge to come back to now I'm back at work and it's definitely my energy will be, will be focusing on. Um, so, the shift was definitely towards those products providing me with opportunities to pick my return and in terms of time and what that looked like um, with a bit more freedom. Yeah. And social proof is something we're going to talk about in this episode, which I'm really excited about. So you've just come out of a launch, right? You've just launched brain. Was it brain camp again? It was. Yes. Yes. Were there any big, any things that you've noticed that have changed since the last time you launched brain camp? Cause now what's that? What's it been like more than a year since you launched it? 
Yes, that's right. So, yeah, more than a year, maybe 17 months or so. Yeah. So, yeah, quite a while. And a lot's changed in the online space since then. So much has, exactly. I think there's been quite a few really key shifts. I think one of those that was already happening, but I think which has accelerated since I last launched was um, the drive towards far more ethical launching and more ethical marketing, um, which is something I've always believed in. So, for me, it wasn't so much a case of having to shift things, but of course, been been more aware about, you know, was there anything I could enhance to make the launch um, more ethical in terms of who I was targeting and how often and those sorts of things, um, mm. how many opt-out links I was giving, all of those bits and pieces. I think the other really key shift that's happened is, of course, COVID, um, because the last time I launched Brain Camp was towards the end of 2020. So, COVID was definitely around, but i I feel like we were almost in the space where for a lot of the world, it felt like maybe we were coming out of it. I, I don't think we we're in the space where we realized that, you know, halfway through 2022, it would still be <laughs> such a big driving force <laughs> yeah. in the shape of our lives and the amount of time and energy we have for things, the amount of burnout I think people are feeling. Um, and also, I think some of the um, implications for the economy too. Um, yeah. And of course, I think the war in Ukraine is also also contributing to that as well. So, quite a few big picture shifts that I did really try to um, cater for in the launch. Yeah. And I mean, was there anything that you learned from the results or anything that surprised you about the results? Um. I mean, it sold out really easily, which was amazing. Um, and I, I really think I have to thank, you know, past Kirsty for that because since I launched pretty soon after coming back from mat leave, my pre-launch runway was nowhere near as long or as um, uh, deliberate as I guess it would have been in the past. But I think what's really good is that um, because I think people are perhaps – slightly less likely, this is a generalization, but I think people are perhaps slightly less likely to part with their money as readily as they might have been pre-COVID. The reputation of an offer really matters. Um, And I guess to demonstrate that, um, what I did with this launch was I had the cart open just for the people on the wait list for three days. Um, There were four spots left at that stage. And I sent out an email on the third day, just being like, hey, so there are still four spots left. Um, Basically, I don't want to keep bugging you. So, I'm going to open up those spots to the wider world this time tomorrow. Um, You won't hear from me about it again. You know, if you want to, if you want to join or or get in touch and we can have a conversation about it, that's great. If not, thanks so much for hanging out. I really appreciate you being here. Um, And then the next day I did as I said I would, and I promoted it just in my Instagram stories. That was the only other promotion on any other platform. And I was able to, by tagging um, past brain campers whose social proof I was sharing, um, I was able to, without asking them, get them to share things in their stories. And a lot of them just gave these amazing unprompted testimonials um, or they offered on their Instagram stories to talk to anyone who was undecided. So, Mm. you know, like what an amazing sales tool and like what a privilege to have worked with those wonderful people. But I think also what a great way to display the reputation or the value of an offer. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in that way, and it also felt quite easy, right? Because there was, there was no complex strategy really. (laughs) Oh, if only everybody could make launching look so easy, Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look behind the scenes. My my boy had hand, foot, and mouth that week, so it, I I didn't have I didn't have the time 
to give the launch to make it any more complex anyway. So it, it was what it needed to be, but it got me what I needed it to get. So it, it ended up working out really well because I was just, I could only work while he was napping or after he went to bed. So, you know, <laughs> life has yeah. definitely changed. <laughs> And I guess from the outside of a launch like that, somebody would look at it and be like, wow, Kirsty sent like three emails and did an Instagram story and she had a sold out launch. Hmm. But what they're not seeing is, you know, the amount of work that you've put in, not just since coming back from mat leave, but also before you went on mat leave, building that reputation, building your network. You know, like you, you were booking out months in advance before you went on mat leave. And people have now waited 18 months to join your program again. Of course, it was going to sell out so easily, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's really important to note too, because I know sometimes in the launch world, you can see what feels like such a simple launch do really well. And I know that's an example of that. And this launch did feel really easy and clean. But as you say, it's not just a result of the work that happened during that week. Um, there's so much work that has got that offer to the point where it sells that easily. Um, so I love that you called that out because I think it can be disheartening to see that and be like, God, why do I have to like put so much effort in and send like 15 emails and, you know, try and build my audience for three months? Like, you know, I've done all that in the past. So to get to the point where it is now. Um, and also a Kirsty email is like three times the power of a normal email. <laughs> 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 I don't know that that's true, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's change tack a little bit. Let's talk a bit about customer research um, and, and actually social proof as well. So how much of what goes into your launch strategy and your launch copy comes from customer research and from social proof? So much, like an overwhelming mm-hmm. majority, I would say, um, because the glorious thing about customer research is that your prospects or your customers will be able to talk about your offer in a way that's far more resonant than you or I ever could, right? Um, So, I mean, if you do your customer research correctly and you're asking the right sorts of questions, um, you know, and sending out really strategic surveys at the right time, for example, um, the responses you get can really write the copy for you in that they can give you information on how to position the offer. They can tell you what outcomes you really need to play up, what features you really need to play up, what objections you really need to tackle as well, which I think is something people will will often forget can come from those feedback surveys. Um, and of course, you can also use everything they share as social proof. Um, and I think the power of social proof is that what it really is, is word of mouth at scale. Um, and word of mouth is, as you know, everyone knows, well, everyone knows is the one of, if not the most powerful marketing tools there is. People are far, far, far more likely to trust the word of someone they either know or respect. Um, and that can influence buying decisions by as much as, I think I read a stat the other day, it was like 85% or something like that, 85% more likely to buy a product that has been recommended by someone they either know or look up to. Um, And social proof is a way of doing that at scale, right? Because you're able to identify who these people are, you're able to talk about or use their words to help you really demonstrate the value and the fit of the offer. Mm. Oh, that makes so much sense when you put it like that. So I'm curious. So you said that, um, you know, it's all about asking the right kind of questions. And I know sometimes it's really... It's like, well, the right kinds of questions, like how long's a piece of string? So maybe if we look at like what are the wrong questions or what questions do you see people asking that aren't really getting them the right kind of research or the right kind of insights that they need? 
Yes. Um, so, as a good general rule, any question that is closed, so any question that can be answered with a yes or a no, or any question that is leading. So, a leading question is, you know, if I say to you, Steph, oh, hey, Steph, did you have a nice time at the beach today? Like, that's a leading question because then your fo- area of focus is immediately reduced into, oh, did I have a nice time at the beach? Think about the beach. As opposed to, you know, what did you enjoy about your day? That gives you a broader mm-hmm. uh a broader pool of information to pull from and, of course, is less likely to create blind spots in your data. Um, so, as a general rule, those closed questions, those leading questions don't have a place in feedback surveys um, unless you need to segment the responses, in which case a closed question that helps you do that um, would be quite important. And what I mean about yeah. that is if you have a survey set up so that, you know, if you're asking someone right at the top, um, you know, have you... Uh, you know, have you yet used whatever the digital product is that you're selling? And if, depending on what they say, yes or yes or no to that question, that will then dictate the series of questions they get after that. Um, because, of course, people who haven't used a digital product, say, a month after purchase, you really want to find out why that is. Is there something about the product itself or about the onboarding process which you could optimise in order to increase the likelihood that people will actually use what they buy? Um, and, of course, if they have used it, then the set of questions you probably want to ask them is quite different. Yeah, that's such a good point. I always do. Um, so when I send my non-buyer surveys out after I close doors, and I think I might have actually got this, I signed up for, I think it was your social proof sidekick or some something of yours where um, you shared some questions to ask in a non-buyer survey. I don't know where it was. It was somewhere in the Kirsty yes. journey, I think. <laughs> and um, the very first question I ask is, did you consider signing up for Launch Magic? Because if somebody didn't consider signing up, well, then there's no point them answering the rest of the questions. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Such a good example. Because you're right. Like yeah. You're not going to get anything from that. And you know, it's also not a good use of their time. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. So, something I've noticed, like Asking those questions, whether it's sending out surveys, but also especially when it comes to doing like say one-on-one calls or asking somebody questions in their DMs or emailing them asking questions. This is something that in particular, my Launch Magic students feel a lot of resistance to. I know people in general in the online space don't really want to ask people these questions. But you know, we all know that it's also super effective, but why do you think it is that we avoid it and we don't want to do it? Ah, such a good question. I think, and I'm sorry, a question to clarify. Are these people Mm. who are asking questions about their own offers? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, I was going to say, cool. So, I think in that case, there's an awkwardness around it if you feel as though you are reaching out to people to get their compliments. (laughs) That's a possibility. (laughs) Or if you feel as though you're reaching out to people and putting yourself in a very vulnerable space because you may discover that the thing you're selling isn't as good as it could be. So, I think a lot of that resistance can be addressed by really framing what you're doing in a much better way. Um, And for me, like I, I honestly believe that I will never get myself and my skills or my offers to a point where they can't be improved. I just flat out believe that. I'm not saying they're not good. I think there's a lot of proof to say they are really good, but they can always be better. And I think coming into those conversations and sending out those questions with that in mind makes me genuinely open to the process. Um, It also means I'm not reaching out to be like, hey, can you tell me all the ways I'm good? (laughs) You know, so there's no awkwardness around that because I'm genuinely interested. Like, hey, like, I want to know about your experience. Like, what can you tell me? Um, You know, and I also want to be able to use this information not just to better 
the offer that you bought, but also to improve and optimize the marketing for it. So I'm attracting more of the right people. Um, so I think that that is probably one of the most helpful things to keep in mind when you are in the position to do it, because if you let that awkwardness prevent you from completing that task, like your marketing will suffer and is chances are that perhaps there's something in your product that you're not seeing that could be done better. Um, and of course, if people aren't loving all of your product, you know, they're less likely to talk about it with, you know, the people they hang out with in other physical or online spaces. Uh, and again, because word of mouth is so so valuable in the world of marketing, um, you know, we really want to create experiences and offers that are worth talking about. Yeah, that's so valuable. I think that that negative feedback, it hurts. Yeah. (laughs) I I hate it when like nothing annoys me more when I get an answer to a non-biased survey that's like, oh no, it was great. It's just not the right time for me right now. I'm like, no, tell me like, tell me what was wrong so I can fix it. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And that, yeah, like, and it hurts when you occasionally get the answers that are like tearing you to shreds. But I always find the best way to do it is to, whenever I'm co-working with a friend, I'll have a glass of wine or something there, and then I'll read through the answers. So that way, if I get one that's particularly bad, I'll read it out loud and we'll laugh about it. And it doesn't feel as bad anymore. Like I, I once had somebody in a Launch Magic non-buyer survey say, oh, I would have bought it if it was $50. And this is a $2,000 course <laughs> that has made many students multiple five-figure launches and yes. pay $50 for it. Oh, look, they're never going to buy from you. They're not your customer. No. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, Kirsty, when you before you sit down to write any copy, whether it's for your own launches or in the past for your clients' launches, what is that research process, that customer research process that you go through before you even write that first word? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I always aim to get on calls with at least three customers, um, or if it's a new offer, um, three prospects or three customers who have bought a different offer or service from the person I'm writing copy for, or if it's for me, from different offer from myself, because I think that can provide valuable, valuable information on the area of expertise, what's really unique about the way you work, what you bring to the table, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, and also, you know, the reason why this person is interested in working with you in the first place, even if it's for a different a different offer. Um, I also send out a bunch of surveys um, and those are usually um, divided into different categories um, of behavior. So, like you say, non-buyer surveys at the end of a launch can be really handy at helping you uncover some objections that perhaps your just-finished launch didn't tackle well enough. So, you can feed that information into the launch the next time around. Um, Surveys that go out to existing customers, um, obviously incredibly valuable. Um, So, I guess they're the two segments that that always get surveyed. Um, And there could be more depending on the shape of the launch and the shape of the offer and all those sorts of things. Um, So, once you have that information, it's about pulling it all together. So, I always get transcripts done for the calls um, because I find that if something's in writing, I can, you know, highlight things. I can put things in different categories about like objections and have like a bunch of things there. Um, Or I can like really quickly, you know, find really juicy bits that will go straight into a headline, for example, or that will make a really good testimonial for the cut close email or whatever it might be. Um, So, yeah, starting there, organizing it. And then from that, looking for the key messages, which you should then be highlighting um, as you market that offer. Mm, Okay. That's that's so backwards to how most people do the copy, right? They sit down and they start writing and they just wait for the inspiration to flow and it doesn't. Yes. 
<laughs> yes. And it's funny because I think, you know, and we you know when I started out, I certainly wasn't doing this kind of research and I didn't realize that copywriting wasn't just about being a good writer. Um, it's about being a good researcher, I think, and being able to filter that information into a really cohesive argument for the offer that you're selling. Um, because I think actually in reality, it's like my writing skill is far less important than my research and organization skill, I guess, of the messaging and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and understanding the mechanisms which I'm using to build that relationship between my client and their prospect or to help them make a decision, whether it's a yes or a no, you know, it doesn't, you know, you just want to attract the right people. So I'm not about mm-hmm. trying to get everyone to buy. It's about <laughs> how do you resonate with the right people at the right time. Um, so I think those skills are far more important than my ability to string together a good sentence. <laughs> yeah. And how do you distill like when you're on those calls and you get let's say you get one person who gives you feedback or gives you answers that are like the zag when the other people you're interviewing zig, how do you find that fine balance between, you know, writing for those people, for the right people, but then also, you know, you've got some people who are so completely different or have a completely different attitude or different objection or different problem. How do you, um, I guess, how do you distill all of those into cohesive copy? Such a good question. So, I think, you know, the most important thing to look for are the trends. So, of course, you know, not everyone's going to say exactly the same things, but which key things are coming up again and again and again. Um, I wonder too, perhaps what you're asking there is about when you have a product that may fit a couple of different um, prospects. So, you're not just speaking to say a business owner, but maybe you're speaking to someone who writes copy um, as part of a nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if it's business owners, it's like, you know, somebody who's in their first year of business versus their third year versus their 10th year of business, all business owners, but very diverse problems, very diverse needs. Yes. So I think in that case, and this is where that voice of customer data comes in so handy, that might be bad grammar, Comes in really no, handy. No, that works. <laughs> that works. You're not okay. a copywriter, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, so I think because in those situations, the specificity that you get out of those conversations and those surveys allows you to speak and resonate with those people on such a deep level, even if you're speaking to a different person, say in a section of bullet points. So, you know, it could be that whether you're finding that and then you pull like five different bullet points that are common but also perhaps diverse and, you know, and as you say, it could relate to how long you've been in business, but this is the struggle. Um, As long as your ideal prospect can see themselves reflected in that somewhere um, and really I think that's most important when they're talking about prospect pains or challenges and also desired outcomes, um, I think the rest that's in the middle, um, you know, doesn't have to be, Uh, tailored so much because if you can resonate with those two pieces, the offer itself should be able to speak to all of those anyway without having to fiddle with it too much, if that makes Mm, sense. That does make sense. So then when you're writing the copy, obviously then we need social proof. So mostly when people think of social proof, testimonials are probably the first thing that come to mind. What other forms of social proof do you like to include in your launches or in your clients' launches? Such a good question. So, I am a rabid fan of what I call unprompted social proof, which is when a customer will send you an email out of the blue or a DM on Instagram um, sharing a win that they've got, you know, like, oh my God, my launch just hit like seven figures, for example, if I was to use an example for selling launch copy services. Um, 
getting their permission to use a screenshot of that with or without their, their name and details visible, that kind of proof can be absolute gold because I think there is no question then in your prospect's mind that this is a real statement from a real human being, whereas people can sometimes be a little bit suspect on testimonials because, of course, you know, you are able to edit the flow of them and leave bits out, etc. Um, I'm also a huge fan of <laughs> screenshotting um, feedback forms, um, particularly for BrainCamp, in their entirety and including them in emails both to the list at large, the launch list at large, and also to individuals who reach out with questions because I know that if I have someone in mind, I'm like, oh, they had that same objection. Um, let me just allow them to speak for their experience because that's so much more powerful than me coming in and just saying, communicating that in my own words. Like, let me show them. You know, I'm not going to tell them, I'm going to show them. Um, what else do I like using? I think even for things where you have a limited number available, so perhaps it's a small group program, the proof can be in reducing or updating the number of spots available as they sell out. That's also social mm. proof, just prove that people are buying. Um, celebrating the people who join on social media, if they're comfortable with you naming them, um, that's also good proof of who's joining and that people are buying. Um, so that there's so many things beyond just a testimonial that you can really do with social proof. And I think the more strategic you become with it, the better the results are. Yeah. Actually, one of the best, I think one of my favorite emails that you've ever written was for the very first launch magic launch. And I think we've recycled it in some form over the last three launch, last four launches. <laughs> Yay. But the, that email was where I think it came in at about day three of cart open and it was welcoming how, welcoming the launch magicians who had signed up. So it said, you know, inside launch magic already, we've got this person, they joined because of this reason. And these were real people. Yes. And you'd left, you'd purposefully left those sections blank so that I could fill it in based on the feedback I was getting from people who had signed up for launch magic. Yes. That email, I love that email. It was great. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so glad it's still being used because, yeah, it is so powerful, I think. And even if in that situation, you can't name the people who are joining, if you're able to share their reasons for joining, Joining, that can be enough to resonate with that person who's still on the fence. So it's like, oh, cool. Okay. Well, that's what I'm looking to get to. So if this person has made the decision that they will find that outcome in this program, great. Like I want to do that too. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and in Launch Magic, it worked so well because we have such a diverse range of people joining. We have people who, you know, they barely even have a business yet with no email subscribers and they're brand new versus people who've been in business for 10 years, who've got a successful service-based business. And then we've got people who've launched before and they're like, oh, I want to launch successfully again. So it really, I think it helps for people to see like, oh, I identify with this person or this person or this person. It must be right for me. So yeah, absolutely. Genius. You're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody's launching something for the very first time and they don't have testimonials for that particular product, or maybe they've pivoted their business and they don't have testimonials in that particular area, how can they get some kind of social proof? Or is it okay for them to even launch without any social proof? Ah, such a good question, that second one. I think it, it can work, but in such specific circumstances. And I think it's only when you have a list or a segment of your list who's so engaged and such a fan of you that they will buy something they see you just outlining in a Google Doc. Um, I think if you're not that established and your relationship with your prospects isn't at that level, I don't think it's a good idea to launch without social proof. So, in that case, I would recommend looking at the proof you already have and seeing 
which elements of the offer you can prove. So, for example, when I launched my second group program, um, obviously I hadn't run that program before, so I had no proof for it, but there were elements of it I could prove, such as um, the value of being in a group space with me. Um, So, I had a section where I had, with people's permission, of course, screenshots from interactions in BrainCamp that really helped prove the point that, you know, the group spaces I create are really valuable and, you know, I'm I'm really responsive and all those sorts of things. Um, It could be that if you have a testimonial from a one-to-one client that helps prove your expertise or your approach, um, you know, say you're... Um, in branding and you're creating digital product that helps people do their branding, then it could be very valuable to have a testimonial from a client that talks about how well you do that and how in-depth your process is, for example. Um, So, I think getting strategic about that. Um, And the final tip I'll give, um, of course, if you are able to, it's always such a good idea to beta test an offer before you launch um, because I think that process can help you not only refine and reshape the offer so it's in its best form or better form, um, but it can also be such a good way to get feedback on the offer before you do the first public launch. You can then use the social proof. Um, and that's exactly what I did for the social proof sidekick. Um, so, it meant that when I did launch that publicly, I had a good amount of proof that I could already weave into the offer um, and the confidence that it was a really good product. Um, and actually, if anyone's interested, I have a workshop available on my website that does take you through how to how to tackle that process as well. The beta testing process, or the, yes. yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm curious because I've I don't know, like whenever I see the words beta test, I'm like, oh, this, there's going to be something wrong with it. I'll join once it's good. So that's why I've always I've always shied away from calling it beta test. I'm always like, yep, founding students. Founding students or like early birds. <laughs> yep. Yep. Which is awesome. I think if that's the language that works for you, that's amazing. Um, I think regardless of how you term it, what is important is to talk about the unique opportunity that's available to those people, right? Um, because usually, uh, and I think you really should do this, if you are beta testing or, you know, offering founding memberships or whatever it might be, there should be, um, that should be reflected in the pricing, right? Like, you know, yeah. this is me testing the offer out. It will probably have some changes made available. So, you won't be able to get it for this price again in future. Uh, and of course, you'll be able to get all future content upgrades, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, because I think that is such a key ingredient of any launch to be able to communicate the unique opportunity as to why your prospect should consider joining now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also then it kind of reaffirms that the beta te- or the beta round or the founding students round or whatever isn't it you're not launching that perfect product out there and that's the one big launch and then you're done. It's actually no, this is going to be a work in progress and it's going to take a few rounds before we get it perfect. Like there's a reason why I didn't record all 12 weeks worth of launch magic the first time I launched it because I would have I'd be right now having to re-record the entire thing mm-hmm. because that first time that first time I taught it, there was so much I didn't know about my students. There was so much that needed to be moved around. And because I've taught it now three times, it's like, cool, we've got it now. Exactly. But it takes a while to get to that point. Absolutely. And as you say, it's yeah, it's such a good thing to keep in mind, not only for the reason that, you know, you save yourself some time down the track because you've left space for that refinement and you've left that door open. But I think also to reinforce the fact that as you always talk about and as your business, I think is such a good example of that, you know, success isn't made on the back of one launch. Mm. It's relaunching oh, and refining. Yeah. And I mean, because you've had massive growth as a result of doing that, right? Um, yeah. And I just think well, you're I- the role model for that. <laughs> 
but it, it, you know, like off what what was it? It was like two or three thousand dollars the first launch, and then through that launching over and over and and automating it, that really helped. But then also launch magic. You know, we've consistently hit pretty much the same revenue four times that we've launched it now. And that's like, great. If we can just keep launching that twice a year, like that's such an easy thing to do. Um, anyway, back to social proof. <laughs> also, we're just what? both diving. I could talk to you for hours about all these things. <laughs> I know. This is the problem with like, fe- you're a fellow launch nerd. I love it. Uh, with um, Okay. So social proof. What would you say are like the key must have elements of good, good social proof? Yep. Um, so I think one of the most key elements I think you need is social proof that helps tackle objections. Um, and I think that's a piece that's often forgotten about because people will just ask for information on the big picture happy outcomes, um, but not ask questions that help gather insight into the buying process, into you know what this person what had questions about before they bought, um, you know, how the product or offer did or didn't address those questions now that they've used or or, or had the experience of it. Um, because if you are uncovering some really common objections and you have this social proof to actually show your prospect, hey, even if you're having the same objection, um, it doesn't mean that you won't benefit from this because here are three people who had the very same thing and and let's dive into their experience. Um, That's super valuable. So, I think that's a category of social proof that should be um, leveraged really readily. Yeah. Yeah. I... Again, I think I got these questions from your social proof sidekick, but um, the questions that I ask when I'm doing testimonial calls, one of them is, I think it was something like, um, what what held you or what, if anything, did you have to consider before you signed up or something like that? And way too many people have told me that they were just like, oh yeah, like I didn't consider anything. I just signed up. I was like, that's not helpful. <laughs> I mean, but that's also good feedback though, right? Because that's like, cool. Okay. So like at what point had you made that decision? Isn't that interesting? Because you you do so much pre-launch stuff, right? So Mm. is it that your pre-launch content is so bloody good that by the time cart opens, people are already sold. They're convinced. Like all they really need is to see the offer. Because I think good yeah. pre-launch content will have that effect. Um, yeah. And, you know, I get that for Brain Camp too. Like, oh, I've been waiting three years just to get a spot. So, you know, I had no objections whatsoever, <laughs> yeah. which is like, okay, that's great. Um, but, of course, you know, it is also helpful to get people who do have objections and to dig a bit deeper if you are noticing that's the most common response. Like, you know, I had no objections. Tell me more about that. Mm. Like, what, what made that possible? Like, what made you know that you were ready to buy? Oof, I love that one. Um, okay, so other key elements of good social copy, social proof, not social copy. <laughs> <laughs> other good elements. Um, I think with social proof, it's so important to feature proof that is from people who are very relatable to your prospect um, or alternatively, people who are celebrities to your prospect. And of course, celebrity is relative, right? So, you know, a celebrity in your world would be someone who's different to, you know, Kim Kardashian, for example, Um, but someone who has, um, you know, some power and some sway and some really good um, public opinion about them, I guess, um, they can be really valuable to feature um, in your social proof because they have a lot of pulling power when it comes to buying decisions. Um, 
on the other side of that, people who are more relatable and they can be relatable to your prospect in terms of where they're at in their business, um, the kind of challenges they're experiencing, the kind of goals they want to or have already hit, um, you know, all those sorts of things. The, the more detail you include and the more three-dimensional those people become, the more powerful the proof will be. And I think that is a really good reason why it's so important to be strategic with the questions you ask in your feedback forms and to steer away from those closed or um, leading questions because you want to be able to open it up for people to give you all those juicy details. So, that's another element I would say is really important. Do you always ask your testimonials in feedback forms or do you jump on calls or how do you do it? So, for me, it's almost always feedback forms um, or I get a lot of unprompted social proof too. So, a lot of emails or DMs and like, it's funny, people who know me now are like, they send the thing and then there's like a follow-up email two minutes later. And yes, you can use this in your social proof. There's no need to ask me because I'm constantly asking people. Um, And I don't use all of it, but I just feel like in the moment, it's the best time to ask for their permission so you can build up a bank. And then when you go through and optimize things, update things, you have all this delicious material to pull from. Um, so, I'm a fiend when it comes to that. It's just like a... <laughs> and there's an art to that too, right? Which is covered in the social proof cycle because you don't want to get this amazing information from someone and then just come back with, oh, can I use this? Like, obviously, you want to honour the amazing thing that's happened for them and you want to thank them for sharing it with you and, you know, celebrate it with them. Um, and you also want to be able to ask if you can use it. So, I think there's a balance yeah. there too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And like... I think it's so much easier. It makes your life so much easier when you're download, you're screenshotting and saving that stuff on the go rather than when it comes to a launch and you're like, oh, who was that person? Who sent me that message? Did they send it on Instagram? Did they email it? I can't remember where it exactly. was. And then you have to go and find it. Just screenshot it at the time and save it. And like we've got an Airtable bank. We call it the impact database. And we've just like got an Airtable bank where all of the screenshots are saved. We probably won't use half of them, but at least we know where they are. Exactly. And it makes it easier. Yeah, I'm the same. I've got folders in my iPhone even because I take a lot of screenshots of Instagram yeah. probably on my phone. I just save like Brain Camp, Ideas Club, such a crew, like whatever it is so that I know where I can go to get them. Um, because, yeah, you're right. You don't like it's such a waste of time to try and remember where that feedback was and then to search back through all the things and try and find it. And, of course, when you're building up to launch, you know, time's often a bit of a luxury. So, you want to make it yeah. as easy for your future self as you can. Oh, absolutely. All right, Kirsty, last, very last question that I've got for you. Do you have any secrets or big tips for getting that best, better customer research, better testimonials, better feedback? Any big tips or secrets that we should know about Ooh. other than get the social proof sidekick? Because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is my secret. <laughs> I would say that the, the best tip I have is to go into the process strategically. So, don't treat your research or your feedback process as a checkbox checkbox task. Really think about how it can serve your copy, your offer, um, you know, the success for your business. Because if you have those things in mind, it actually makes it easier to work backwards. Because if you know what kind of information you need to get, then it's easy to know what kind of questions to ask to get that information and who to ask those questions and also when to ask those questions. So, I think don't just sort of, yeah, lazily be like, oh, cool, I've got to send out this form. Like, you know, let me put that in the calendar for a month's time. Like, really think about it um, because you can actually really easily, once you've got it up and running, it can be an automated process um, or automated to a point. But when you are setting it up for that first time, just really start with strategy in mind. And I think as well, like, Approach it with an attitude of 
genuine curiosity. And I think I spoke about that a bit before, but that can help some of those awkward feelings around reaching out to people and having a really honest chat about your offers or their experience of interacting with them or with your launch or with you. Um, and just be really yeah open to what comes because I think if you're of the mindset that perfection doesn't exist and you can only get better, um, then how valuable is it to be able to, to get that information from your people? Um, so, I, I think they're my, they're my two tips. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'm going to add to that as well. Like, it's not a checkbox task. Like, it's so, it's actually really exciting. I love getting answers back from non-buyer surveys, from any kind of customer research, because it gives me such a good insight. It gives me content ideas for days. And, you know, when you've done, I mean, we're almost up to podcast episode 500. This will be 502, this podcast episode. And it's like, you know, you kind of, the content bank starts running a little bit dry and you're like, just give me ideas. So it's it's great. (laughs) That's so true. It is so good for that as well. You're right. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Kirsty, we will link in the show notes for the um, Social Proof Sidekick, but where else can my listeners find you and your magic? Um, so I'm on uh, Instagram at kirsty.fanton, F-A-N-T-O-N. And you can also find me online at kirstyfanton.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kirsty. You have been wonderful. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Steph. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that episode made me really just want to get out there and survey my audience and find out what kind of insights they have for me. Because obviously, even though I've surveyed multiple times, Each time I do it, I get new insights. And sometimes those insights have led to incredible product ideas or incredible content ideas that have made me lots of money in my business, made me able to help more people and just been really helpful in general, made my life a lot easier when it comes to creating that content. So that is my little challenge for you from this episode. Like, What is one thing that you can research from your customers? Is it that you could send out a survey following your most recent launch? Is it somebody you can reach out to and jump on a Zoom call with and find out what they need from you so you can get some content ideas or product ideas? That is my challenge to you from this episode. If you have any friends who you think would benefit from this episode or any of the other episodes on Socialette Podcast, please do let them know about it. Hit the share button, copy the link and send it to them. If you're not already following this podcast, press the plus button in Apple Podcasts or the follow button in Spotify. And that just means that you get new episodes delivered to your podcast app rather than you having to go and look for them each time they come out. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next time.